We've got one verse of Scripture, Matthew chapter 16, very familiar passage of Scripture as Jesus is with the disciples at Caesarea Philippi up in the far north just before, uh, just a few weeks away from Pesach where he would be making his triumphal entry. But Jesus asked the question, but Peter, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Messiah. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. And, of course, Jesus said, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven and upon this rock. By the way, he was pointing to himself. He wasn't pointing to Peter. Peter is not the rock on which the church is built. There is a rule of Bible study called the law of expositional constancy. The rock is the Lord. From Deuteronomy 32.4 all the way through Scripture, the rock is the Lord. Peter just had the right answer. And Jesus said, you're right, upon this rock, uh, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, my called out assembly. And the powers of hell, the authority of hell will not win. Amen. The title of this message this morning is focusing on that last sentence. And we're going to analyze the word prevailing. Well, midway through last year, we were witnessing some insanity going on across our country with this shutdown. And uh, quite frankly, if you go back, you can look it up. I preached a message called Connecting the Dots on May the 3rd of 2020. And unfortunately, called out exactly what we've seen go on. Uh, This COVID is about 10% truth. It is a real virus. Our response to it has been absolute hoax with the intent purpose of switching or throwing the election. Uh, And they were successful. Uh, the idea of, you know, some of the insanity of what they ask us to do. Oh, when you're walking into a restaurant, you must wear a mask because you're in the danger zone. But once you're seated in the restaurant, you can take your mask off so germs don't get below four feet. I mean, come on. If this was real, if it was really that dangerous uh, and that easily spread, then obviously we wouldn't be locked up at home and we wouldn't be living, leaving for any reason. We wouldn't be hiding in our basements if it was really as they painted the picture. But I saw this coming on and quite frankly, I went through some depression early last year because I've done enough study on politics, I've done enough study on Marxism that this appeared to me to be nothing more than a well-orchestrated, uh, if this was happening in a third world country and our CIA was behind it, I'd say, well, that's very logical. That's the kind of stuff they do. But to see this actually being perpetrated upon our country, it just broke my heart. And it caused me to go into a study on Wednesday nights through the book of Jeremiah. For those of you that don't know, Jeremiah was a devout patriot, loved his country, loved his Lord, and God called him to go and proclaim judgment to his people, and he was hated as a result of it. Well, we are now some 25 weeks into our study on Wednesday night, but it was just two weeks ago that the Lord brought back to mind something that we covered in chapter 1, and I've taught this book several times, I've read it many times, but I'd never really caught this one passage in chapter 1. Well, I want to share this with you this morning. After Solomon's rule, the kingdom divided into the north and the south geographically. You had basically ten states in the north and two states in the south. The north immediately went off into apostasy and idol worship. And their kings reigned 100% of the time in idolatry. But the southern kingdom bounced back and forth. They started off well under Rehoboam. And they were good much of the time, and they were bad with pagan kings much of the time. 
Over the last history leading up to what we're focusing on this morning, you had Uzziah, who was a good king, running for a long time. His son wasn't quite as good, but still was a good king. Ahaz was a terrible king. It was during his reign that much of Isaiah is written, that Micah was written, and such messianic verses as we find out that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem Ephratah. Uh, he will be born of a virgin, Isaiah seven fourteen. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father the prince of peace and the increase of his government forever shall be upon his shoulders on the throne of his father David. He will, in fact, rule of reign. All of that during the reign of Ahaz. Ahaz died, and they had a wonderful revival, wonderful period under King Hezekiah. Of course, it was during Hezekiah's reign that the city was surrounded by the Assyrians, and it looked like all hope was lost when Hezekiah took these surrender letters and basically mocking the God of Israel and laid them before the altar and prayed for God to intervene, and God did intervene. Amazing, sent one angel that night and killed every other Assyrian troop. 185,000 were killed overnight, and God rescued the city. Well, shortly after that, Hezekiah was told to get his affairs in order that he was going to die. And he wept. He loved life. He begged God for added length. And God granted him 14 more years. We'd say that that was a good thing, except it wasn't. In that 14 years, he wound up birthing another son named Manasseh. The Bible says that Manasseh was the worst king in all Israeli history, both north and south. He ruled for a period of 55 years. After his death, son took over for a short period of time. He was assassinated. And then, as we read in the record of Second Chronicles and in Second Kings, we learn about Manasseh's grandson, a young boy named Josiah. Josiah took the throne at the age of eight. And thank the Lord he reasoned or listened to good godly counselors, some senior men that loved the Lord that were still hanging around the administration. And he ruled righteously until the age of 16. Then as a 16-year-old, the Scripture says that he truly fell in love with the Lord and sought the Lord personally with his heart and continued to lead in righteousness. Then at the age of 20, he was so passionate about leading his people in the right direction, he, the king of Judah, personally led an expedition to go throughout all of his land and wipe out every idol that was in the land and do away with idolatry absolutely. And then a few years later, at the age of 26, he said, you know, Uh, My grandfather really let the temple uh, fall into disarray. It hasn't been well kept. This is the house of the Lord. So he set about to refurbish and re-beautify the temple. And as they were doing that process, they discovered a copy of the law. Now imagine that Israel had been so involved in idol worship under King Manasseh that they had lost God's Word. Well, now they had found it. Josiah added, read to him, and he was so taken by how depraved uh, Judah had been and how wicked and disobedient they had been that he rent his garment and was truly ashamed over their behavior. Josiah was a great king with a heart for the Lord. Now, as I've always read this, I would have assumed that this would have been a time of righteousness in Judah and in Jerusalem, a time of joy and prosperity But that was only skin deep. It was shallow and short-lived. And underneath the surface, the people as a whole, not Josiah, but the people as a whole didn't have a heart for the Lord. 
Now, I, I try to put things in a way that I can kind of relate to them and understand them better. As I studied through this, trying to, to make an application that might be something we could relate to, I thought back of, of my own life. As a young man, I turned 18 in the 1980s. The very first time I got to vote was for Ronald Reagan. By the way, that isn't Reagan. That's the Antichrist right there. But... Um, but the very first time I got to vote was for Ronald Reagan. Boy, pity. I never knew that it was going to be the high point of my voting record at that point. It was downhill from then. Well, except for, for President Trump. Uh, it was also. But understand the, the era of time that this was. I was born very early 60s. But in the 60s and 70s, it was a rough time for our nation. Our politicians, both Republican and Democrat, had us mired in what was called the Vietnam conflict. And the sad thing about this is they sent our boys to fight but wouldn't let them win. Came up with this nutty stuff like rules of engagement. You can't shoot at them unless they shoot at you first. If they come across and attack you and then retreat across the river, you can't chase them across the river. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a bunch of bunk. You know, I want peace. I want to pursue peace as, as long as it is possible. But if somebody picks a fight with us, we need to go stop a mud hole in them and then come home. But anyway, we were mired in this for years. 55,000 of our young men, I think, died for, for no apparent reason. Morale in our country declined. Debt rose. We were taken off the gold standard so money all of a sudden could be inflated without any great uh, uh, effort. Um, the Middle East... Uh, created an oil embargo. We had gasoline shortages and the price of gasoline skyrocketed. And then we elected a president named Jimmy Carter and things got worse. The economy tanked with high taxes and inflation. Interest rates. Now you can refinance your house for under 2%. At this point in time, interest rates, we're thinking about this, many of you remember, were about 20%. We abandoned our friendly government that was an ally of America in the country of Iran. And they were overthrown and taken by a radical Shiite, uh, Shiite uh, Muslim uh, atollah. They stormed our embassy in the process, which, by the way, is just like invading Oklahoma. And the embassy is sovereign American ground. And they took captive our Americans, including American Marines, and then they would parade them around on television every day, uh, our Marines with masks and shame as prisoners of Iran. And for 400 days, this was a nightly event uh, on the news. I don't know how many of you all may remember that. We were at the height of the Cold War. The Soviet Union was our arch enemy. And half of Europe was under the iron boot of communism. Then, in 1980, we got our own Josiah. A Ronald Reagan was elected. Jerry Falwell, James, uh, Dr. G. James Kennedy, Adrian Rogers, the moral majority was true and was not hypocritical and was in full force at the time. Iran wound up freeing the prisoners, knowing that America wasn't going to fool around anymore. Our economy boomed. Interest rates were cut in half over the next decade. And by the end of Reagan's term, the wall in Berlin fell and the Soviet Union collapsed. The Cold War was over and we thought we had won. But after Reagan we have gone into a steady decline with the exception of the last four years that was unexpected and caught the globalists by surprise. Well, so too was Judah after the horrors of Manasseh. King Josiah, in a sense, led the Reagan revolution for his country. 
Now, here's the point. It's interesting that it was during this time that God called Jeremiah to go and preach repentance. In the 13th year of Josiah's 30-year reign. So they were just on the uptick. They were still in the upswing. But God called Jeremiah for a job that he knew needed to be done. Now, as I read in 2 Chronicles, I read in 2 Kings, on the surface, I wouldn't have seen this coming. I wouldn't have assumed that his calling was necessary. We would have thought that Judah was heading in the right direction and doing the right thing, but they weren't. Now, let me make a few observations from Jeremiah, and I think we can make some application to ourselves today. Observation number one, no crisis catches God by surprise. As God called Jeremiah, he told him, before I formed you in the belly, I knew the job that I was creating you to do. I knew the need, and I created you to do it. I sanctify you. I set you aside from the womb to go and preach unto these nations. Now, although King Josiah sought the Lord sincerely, it was obvious that most of the people were merely going through the motions. They still held to idolatry in their hearts. And when given the choice and the opportunity, they would revert and choose to do wrong. But before the problem was evident, God raised up Jeremiah to address the problem. It says that God created Jeremiah, equipped him, and called him before you were even formed in the womb. I already had the job, and I'd already chosen you to do the job, and I was going to prepare you to accomplish that job. So point number one, ladies and gentlemen, take comfort, whether it be 606 B.C., or whether it be 2021 A.D., God is on the job and nothing catches him by surprise. Observation number two, note Jeremiah's humility. He didn't think he could do it. Beginning in verse 8, he said this, Oh, Lord, I can't do this. I can't go talk to the people. I'm just a kid. But the Lord said, Don't say that you're too young, for I will go with you. Not only am I sending you, but I'm going with you, and I'm going to tell you exactly what to speak. Don't be afraid, Jeremiah. Notice this point. Don't you back up. If you back up, if you start to retreat, then I'm not with you. Because I'm just going forward, the Lord says. You don't get afraid of their dirty looks. You stand strong. You don't compromise the message. And I will stand with you. Ladies and gentlemen, I think there are two types of people that I have seen around church and in ministry. There are those that feel qualified to do great things for God. And then there are those of us who don't feel qualified to do great things for God. So many great servants of the Lord, as you read in Scripture, didn't want the job that God was calling them to do because they didn't think they were capable of doing the job that God had called them to do. But it's usually just that kind of humble attitude that God chooses to use. Look in history when it was time to anoint the next king after Saul had failed. They went to the house of Jesse, went through all seven of Jesse's sons, down to the youngest, handsome, little, skinny runt named David, the most unlikely choice, but it was David that God selected to go out and face off with the great champion of the Philistines, Goliath. It was David that God selected to use to be the shepherd and lead his people. Consider Gideon. Gideon, the Scripture tells us, was threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, for those of us that live in America, that means absolutely nothing. But let me explain why that's significant. When you thresh wheat, you beat it up, you separate the wheat kernels from the chaff, and then you throw it up in the air, 
and the wind blows away the chaff, and you're left with the wheat on a big blanket or, or something here to catch it with. So it's important if you're doing this, if you're threshing wheat, you need to be up on a hill on a high spot. Well, Gideon was afraid of the Midianites that had, they were ruling them at that time. So he was hiding in a low spot. He was doing nearly the impossible, but the point is he was hiding out. He wasn't what you would call a man of courage. Yet the angel of the Lord showed up and said, Hey, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. Gideon didn't think he was the man. God said, That's exactly what I need. I need somebody that's going to realize he can't do it. He's going to rest on me. Consider Moses. Moses at one time early in his life, he thought that he was the man. Moses was a champion. He was a principal ruler in Egypt. He was a war hero. And he thought he could lead the people of Israel to freedom. But that's not what God needed, nor what God could use. Moses wound up failing in his efforts, ran off into the wilderness for 40 years, grew to be age of 80, was now nothing more than an old shepherd. When he was out watching his sheep one day, he saw a bush burning up on the hill uh, and, and said, what's amazing about this bush? It's burning, but it's not being consumed. I better go check this out. God spoke to him out of the bush and said, I've got a job for you to do, Moses. I want you to go and dress down and take down the most powerful man on the planet. You know what Moses' reaction was. Oh, Lord, I'm too old for this job. Oh, Lord, I don't have the connections. Oh, Lord, I don't have the money. Oh, Lord, I don't have the, I don't have, I don't have the eloquence of speech. Oh, Lord, Pick somebody else. But it's just that kind of guy that the Lord likes to use to do great things. Jeremiah said, oh, I'm too young. I'm too inexperienced. Ladies and gentlemen, if your first response in the crisis that we are in is, I can't do it, then you might just be the perfect choice for God to choose to use and do something great through. Recognize that Paul, in his logic and reasoning, was said, Lord, I'm serving you with all my heart. We're we're accomplishing a lot. But Lord, if you would heal me of this thorn in my flesh, if you would heal me of this infirmity that I've been stricken with, Lord, I'm sure I could do so much more. But God knew better. God knew that Paul needed this infirmity so Paul wouldn't trust his own ability, that Paul would have to trust in God's strength, God's wisdom, God's ability. And Paul concluded, yes, Lord, I get it now. When I am weak, then am I truly strong. Observation number three, God's promise. Thou therefore gird up thy loins and arise and speak unto them all that I command thee. Don't be dismayed at their faces, lest I confound you before them. For behold, I have made thee this day. Notice these metaphors. You're unbeatable, Jeremiah. I've made you a defensed city, a city on a hill with high walls. I've made you an iron pillar. I've made you walls of brass against the whole land. Notice your enemies against the kings of Judah against the politicians of Judah, against the priests of Judah, and against the people of Judah. So basically, it was Jeremiah against everybody. And they shall fight against thee, but notice this next verse. Think back to our Scripture text this morning. And they shall not prevail against thee, for I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. Now, folks, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. And that's for good reason. As I said earlier in opening comments, he loved the Lord with all of his heart, and he was surrendered to serve him. 
And he also loved his country with all of his heart. He was a devout patriot, and he wanted the best for his people. And beginning in the middle of good King Josiah's reign and continuing for 40 years through the reigns of wicked kings and poor leadership, God called him to warn the people of coming judgment, to plead with them to repent and to change their ways. And understand, you get into Jeremiah chapter 7, God didn't send, or God didn't send Jeremiah to the bar rooms and the brothels to preach repentance. God sent Jeremiah to the gates of of the temple to preach repentance to those people during the high holy days when all Israel would be coming together back at the temple. So God was going, sending Jeremiah to preach repentance to the regular churchgoers. And you're going to see the list of charges against them here, why God was upset, because these people were very devoted to go through the motions of religion Hey, they were, they were perfect at bringing their sin offering to the temple. Then as soon as they left, they would cheat in business. They would cheat on their wives. They would lie in contracts. They would lie to each other. They would plot and strategize. They had baby murder. They had idol worship. They had all sorts of gross sins in the other six days of the week of their lives. But then they went to church and said, hey, everything's all right. We're God's people. Consider the list of charges that God has listed against Judah. They were dishonored. By the way, they were devoted. They never missed church. Think about this. Think about a person that never misses church, that always walks in 20 minutes before the service starts with his finest suit, nice tie, big Bible under his arm. Yet, if you followed him the rest of the week, this is what you saw. Dishonest in business. Ignored the sabbatical year of release. Used unjust weights and measures. That means as you're, hey, I'm selling you a pound of fish here, but I've got some uh, weights over here that really only weigh 15 ounces. So you think you're getting a pound of fish, but I'm really cheating you. That's what dishonest weights and measures. By the way, that's what inflation is in the economy. You have $100,000 that you have saved up in the bank for your retirement, and then all of a sudden the government just flips a switch and creates another $2 trillion to push into the economy, and that $100,000 that you thought you had saved over there now only has the buying power of $75,000. We're guilty of the same thing as our country. Removed landmarks, no respect for private property rights, bribed judges, the leaders or the politicians fed off the flock rather than caring for the flock. How many people go to Washington, D.C. as paupers and they leave 20 years later worth $50 million? How does that work when you live in a very expensive city and you make $150,000 a year? Disrespectful to parents and elders. They didn't care for their senior members of the family. Didn't care for widows in the family. They lived for revelry and drunken parties. They aborted their children. Religion became big business. They no longer were ashamed of immorality, even celebrating homosexuality and parading it through the streets. Things that common sense and God said was evil, they called good. Things that experience in common sense and God called good, they called evil. Let me ask you this a quick pop quiz question. How many genders are there? Not that hard of an answer, is it? It's amazing we struggle greatly with that question anymore. They were proud and arrogant. Their court system had become corrupt. Their government was corrupt. They denied and abandoned God. And the whole time as Jeremiah was preaching repentance to them, their response was, look, we've got the temple. We're still God's people. God lives right here among us. We don't need to repent. We've got nothing to worry about. 
And as a response to this message that Jeremiah was preaching, they hated Jeremiah. They tried to destroy his reputation by lying about him and spreading rumors about him. Jeremiah was a victim of the cancel culture before there was such a thing as the cancel culture. Jeremiah was ostracized from all of Jewish society. Even his own family contrived plots to assassinate him. They tried to trap him in his words. And one of the things that I'm sure that hurt him the most is they accused him of treason and marked him as a traitor. Why? Because he was warning them that Babylon was going to come and judge them and conquer them because of their disobedience. The most faithful man in all Judah, the most ardent patriot among them, and he was marked as a traitor. It is no wonder that he is called the weeping prophet. He had become the enemy to corrupt kings and wicked political establishment. He had become the enemy to the wicked priesthood that had abandoned their holy calling for the allure of popularity and wealth. He was the enemy of the popular preachers who preached, Shalom, Shalom, all is well. We've got nothing to worry about. Look, we've got the temple right there. After all, we are God's people, and He became the enemy of the people. As a result, He was lonely. He suffered public beatings. One account says that he was locked in stocks. And it's not like what we think in the old colonial days. They would have one beam of wood where your head, your hands, and your feet were all in one line in that contorted, twisted position. And then you were hung in the gates for 24 hours for people to walk by and mock you. He was horribly mistreated. And then, after the people didn't listen... Jeremiah was there inside the city suffering deprivation and starvation along with everyone else during the 18-month siege by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And then much of this time, he was imprisoned in what the KJV calls a miry pit. But imagine being in, a, in, in gush and gunk and in your own uh, waste and that being the prison life. Living in that, not being able to really lie down in this, this awful whatever you're in. But God promised that they wouldn't prevail against him. God promised, using those metaphors, oh, you're a, a defense city, like a city on a hill with high walls. You're like an iron pillar. You're like brass walls. How many of you remember watching the old Rocky Balboa movies? If he's the winner, you'd hate to see what the other guy looked like. So the question that dawned on me a couple of weeks ago is, what does prevail mean anyway? I don't think you'd define Jeremiah's life as victorious by our standards. You and I would conclude that his ministry was a failure if you were looking at numbers. He spent 40 years preaching. Few listened. In fact, his mission field, both the city and the people, were ultimately destroyed. He was hated by all. He was beaten up. He was jailed. He was tortured. He was lonely. He was cursed. He was accused of treason. There were several occasions where Jeremiah himself questioned God, saying, God, you misled me. But the truth of the matter is, they did not prevail over Jeremiah. In spite of the misery and suffering, 
Jeremiah stayed faithful to do exactly what God called him to do. In spite of the misery and suffering, he would not compromise the truth. In spite of the misery and suffering, he would not be silenced. Jeremiah proved to be right. Sadly, the people were judged and Jerusalem was destroyed. But here's the thing that I had to deal with over the last couple of weeks, and I must share with you. As I study through Jeremiah, I don't know if there was ever a time that Jeremiah experienced happiness or the happiness that he would have hoped for on earth. But I'll tell you what, Jeremiah right now is in heaven enjoying the presence of God in whom he trusted and served faithfully. Jeremiah did prevail. He was proven to be right. The others were proven to be wrong. Jeremiah would not quit. Jeremiah stayed faithful to do exactly what God had called him to do. That's the point I want us to grab hold of. Now, let me make some applications for us today. Number one, we too have a direct calling. We have been commanded to go and make Christ followers, not church members, not people that have prayed the sinner's prayer. We are supposed to go and make disciples, followers of Christ, 24-7 Christianity. Along with that, we are called to be salt and light. As a matter of fact, very specifically in Ephesians, Paul tells the church, not only do I want you to come out from evildoers, but I want you to actively stand against them and oppose them and try to stop them. So not only is it not enough that we don't participate in abortion, but as Christians, we should be working to see such a a, a horrible activity in our country come to an end. We too have been given a promise that we will not go alone. And we too have been given a promise that the power or the authority of hell will not prevail against the ecclesia. Now, folks, this is the point of the message. This is what I want to come back to and focus on. I've heard a lot of great preachers, men that I love and admire. They point to this verse and they say, look, we're going to win the culture war. Things are going to get better and better and better. We're going to win this culture war because right there, Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We're, we are definitely going to see revival in America. We are de- definitely going to see a restoration to holiness because God said that, that the devil wasn't going to prevail against the church. Well, I hope so. Boy, I genuinely hope so. And that's one of the things that we're working on right now. But that's obviously not what God meant when he gave the same promise to Jeremiah. Now, folks, listen, we know that the gates of hell, the power of hell, does not win. They will not prevail against us. We know how it all ends up. What we don't know is exactly what the ride looks like between where we are now and where we know it ends up, what it does talk about in Scripture. Let's just look for a moment as we get ready to wrap up. Here's what we do know. Timeline through history. God revealed Himself, of course, through Abraham after the flood. We see the generations from Abraham. We see the Exodus. We see the times of the judges. The Jews were in the promised land without a king, operating as a republic. We see the kingdom years. We see after Solomon, the divided kingdom and disobedience. We see in this period, God sending prophets saying, repent, 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 or I'm going to take you out of the land. 
The kingdom was divided. The northern ten tribes went into captivity in 722 B.C. The southern two tribes went into captivity in 606 B.C. From that point on, they were looking forward to the promised Messiah, the next king of the lineage of David. God promised that a, a descendant of David would sit on the throne forever and rule and reign literally from Jerusalem. The Jews take that literally. By the way, I do too. But from 606, there was no king. They're looking forward to that future king. Now, Hosea says you're going to abide many days without one. Matter of fact, Isaiah reaffirms the promise. Don't worry. He's coming. His, for unto us a child is born, signifying his humanity. For unto us a son is given, uh, signifying his deity. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Peace, or the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and shalom and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it, and establishment, with judgment, and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You can write it down. It is going to happen. So the Jews know that the king is coming. But they're confused over how he's going to arrive because the Scripture tells us about two different appearances. Zechariah 9.9 says he's going to come humbly, bringing salvation, riding over the crest of the Mount of Olives on a donkey's colt. Zechariah 14 says there's going to be a big war going on around Jerusalem. Right in the middle of it, when it looks like it's all over, King Messiah is going to show up leading an army, riding on a white stallion and defeat the foes. The same guy in chapter 9 wrote one and chapter 14 wrote the other. You can kind of see why the Jews were somewhat confused over this. Some of them have concluded that there must be two different messiahs. There's this humble Messiah that's kind of patterned after Joseph who was betrayed by his brothers and sold off into slavery and eventually came to greatness in Egypt. And then there's the Messiah after the family of David that's going to be a power and glory and a warrior type. No, there's not two Messiahs. There's one Messiah who's coming twice and in between is this era of time that we call the church age which was hidden in the Old Testament. Now, we know what goes on the last seven years. The Bible's very clear. By the way, everything in Bible prophecy is not telling us when the rapture is coming. It's telling us when the second coming is to happen. That's at Armageddon when King Jesus shows up literally and stands on planet Earth. Everything in the Old Testament, all the prophecies are pointing to that. We know in the last seven years, Daniel tells us, Jesus reaffirmed it in the Olivet Discourse. Paul talks about it in great detail. Revelation talks about it specifically in great detail. We know the last seven years, we know it's going to be like birth pains, getting increasingly worse and closer together till finally it culminates in Armageddon and the return of Jesus. We know at the midpoint there's going to be a rebuilt temple and this super politician who's going to feign as being a good guy is going to walk into the temple and demand that he be worshipped and that if you don't have your vaccine passport, you can't buy or sell or do business. But the church age was hidden in the Old Testament. In between those two appearances, Zechariah 9.9, 9, 
Zechariah 14.1, we don't see anything in the Old Testament talked about. That's this era that we are in now. Jesus said when he was giving his mystery parables of the kingdom, he talked about this age being hidden from the foundation of the world. Paul going into great detail in the book of Ephesians about this mystery body called the ecclesia, both Jew and Gentile. No longer does the Jew have to get circumcised and go through the rites of Judaism. Both Jew and Gentile, whosoever shall bend their knee and call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and be part of this called out assembly. Paul says that this was hidden from the foundation of the world. We didn't learn about this until looking back at Jesus. We didn't realize this age that we currently find ourselves in. Now, during our lives, during this period of time, there's the church age right here. We'll look at that in detail in just a moment. We'll tie it up, bring this to a close. Jesus said that during this period of time, the world is going to hate us. Hated Him. We should expect trials. We should expect persecution. In fact, Jesus said, whosoever kills you is going to think they're doing God a good service. He said, in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Paul and Peter both talk about this age, saying that as it gets later and later, perilous times shall increase. We have a big picture view of this age of the church. It's given to us in Revelation. By the way, Revelation is in chronological order. Chapters 2 and 3 deal with this age that we find ourselves in. Again, hidden in the Old Testament. God's way of teaching through patterns is demonstrated here. These seven churches with their particular nuanced problems and praises in this particular order lays out perfectly what we have actually seen in church history. Seven is the number of completion. Five of these seven churches aren't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. I am convinced that it is that prophetic pattern that these seven are addressed. Makes no sense that God wouldn't have mentioned the church in Rome or the church in Antioch or the church in Jerusalem, all of which played far more significant roles as you study the book of Acts. But these seven churches, Church of Ephesus, the Apostolic Age, the Church of Smyrna, the Age of Persecution, uh, the Age of Pergamos, when the church married the state, the Dark Ages of Thyatira, Sardis being the Reformation, Philadelphia being the church of the open door, and Laodicea being that lukewarm church that says, hey, we've got plenty of money, we're in need of nothing, we're good. Now, as you look in the Bible... And you consider this age, you will not find anywhere that mentions the Mayflower. But we look back in history 400 years ago, we know it did in fact happen. A persecuted church in Scrooby wound up coming to North America, settling in Plymouth. As you look in your Bible, you will not find mentioned the first Great Awakening. You'll not find Jonathan Edwards' name mentioned. You'll not find George Whitfield's name mentioned. But what happens when we look back at history? Did it happen? Yep. As you look in the Bible, you'll not see 56 men signing the Declaration of Independence. 
But every 4th of July, we celebrate it. As you look in the Bible, you'll not see the second great awakening with Finney and some of those great men that worked to bring slavery to an end in America. We don't see it in Scripture, but we know that it happened. So here's the point. God has promised that the bad guys will not win. They will not prevail against the church. As we consider what that really means in light of the fact that Jeremiah was made the same prophecy, that doesn't mean that our life is going to be a rose garden. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus said, in this world you should expect uh, persecution. The world hates me. The world is going to hate you too. As we look back at history, as the church has gotten engaged and engaged the culture, we have seen great times of, of prosperity and freedom in history, in particular in the United States over the last 250 years. We have also seen very dark periods of time, including what's going on in China right now, where you actually have Christians being persecuted because they're Christians. I know we win. I know what happens the last seven years. I know the rapture of the church. I know that there will be a loose coalition of global government with ten super somebodies working behind the scenes trying to gain power of everything. They're going to put forward their little front man, their super politician, that after three and a half years, he's going to go from being their front man to being the big shot and bringing them under his control. We know the Bible talks about, in Revelation, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven vials, progressively increasing in intensity and frequency, culminating in what's called the Battle of Armageddon, where all the countries of the world, by the way, that's what Zechariah 14 says, Joel 3 says, Revelation 19 says, all the countries of the world will come together against Jerusalem. And it looks like they're going to win when all of a sudden that second coming occurs, King Jesus shows up and cleans house. We know what the last seven years look like. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Where are we in this? I think we're somewhere in here. I think we are very late in the day. Does that mean five minutes? Good. Does that mean five years? Good. Could be ten years. Maybe longer. I don't see how it could be much longer, but nevertheless, it could. Here's what we don't know, ladies and gentlemen. In the time between here and the rapture, what do we foresee in our future? Will it be a time of revival, another great awakening, the restoration and continuation of liberty? Or we, will we just continue to integrate and erode into globalism and global socialism? You know what? The outcome depends on what we decide to do. Let me throw out a, a, an option out here. I hope we can save the entire country. But I don't think our country's ever been this divided. Probably not since 1860. And I don't like divorce. I'm not a proponent for it. It wasn't God's original design, not God's intent. But sometimes the divorce is necessary. As much as I would like to see our country continue in one in liberty, I would rather just split and at least some of us continue in liberty. But as you look at these numbers, you'll recognize that this is a very plausible solution. 
And if there are people around the United States that wish to work together but don't want to worry about having a biblical worldview or don't give two hoots about there only being two genders or, 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 and states that want to outlaw abortion and have common sense morality, why can't we just live side by side? If they want to go into global socialism, go. We can still go visit Boston. We just won't want to move there. We can go visit California. They'll still have pretty beaches. Then think about it. When socialism collapses, if the Lord hadn't come back, come back first, we can go buy property real cheap out in California. Take it back over again. I don't know how it's going to be between now and the rapture. But you've heard me say on many occasions, my whole reason for engaging the culture the way that we have is I have wanted my kids to be able to raise my grandkids in a sane, God-fearing country. Where you can send your kids out, hey, go play until dinner time and then come back and not have to worry about them. I don't know which way it's going to be, ladies and gentlemen, but recognize this as we wrap this up. None of this caught God by surprise. Number two, He didn't put us here by accident. He put us here at this time for such a time as this. Number three, He didn't send us in our power, but in His and as Jeremiah prevailed, as Jeremiah would not relent, as Jeremiah would not quit, we must be faithful, we must be courageous, we must be diligent, and we will, at least this, at least this church, will continue to point people to Jesus, and we will continue to stand against sin and wickedness, and stand for liberty and freedom until they arrest us, or until the last breath is breathed from our lungs.